Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. Then we're joined by Glenda Jackson, former Labour Party leader in the UK and award-winning actress who is playing King Lear on Broadway. The situation still is that if a woman is successful, regardless of the field that she's working in, she is deemed to be the exception that proves the rule. If she's a failure, well, we told you they were all rubbish. Before we get started, this message is inspired by Cleo Wade's latest poem, Love Cleo Wade, the poet. She's not only a great friend, but also was on the pod, and she's an author. Check her out. She wrote, if you're the same person who feels liberated because you live by the mantra, don't worry about what anybody thinks, then also think about being the person who is not weighing other people down with your negative thoughts and judgments about their life choices. And that really spoke to me, because there are a lot of people out here like, I don't care what people think, like... You know, what people say doesn't matter, but then they are the most judgmental people. They are the people whose thoughts are actively doing work to disparage other people and that are clouding the worlds of other people. Don't be that person. Make sure that you put the energy in the world that you want to be in your world. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Samsway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith Third. Aye, aye, aye. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-R-A-Y on Twitter. So y'all, Reggie and I went down memory lane this weekend. We took our horse down the old town road and we went to the movies. (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) We went to the movies. That was good. And we saw Aladdin. And I just had my whole life, like I sang all the songs except for the new ones, which I clearly didn't know. But like, I totally got my whole life. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, It was some good memories. Have y'all seen it yet? I have not seen it, but was it good, good, or was it like nostalgia good? Like that is a fair question because some stuff. Wait, and the blue well. wasn't bad. The blue isn't he blue? Okay. That wasn't bad. Let me answer the blue question first. Blue Aladdin, blue, or genie, the genie. Blue genie is that bad, but he's not blue for most of the movie, and like he he kind of pops in and out of blue. You remember how Robin Williams? He had this kind of like frenetic energy for the genie. Mm-hmm. I think Will Smith preserves that well. And so he like goes in and out of different characters and all of that kind of stuff. So you don't get blue genie for that long, but it is a little, it's a little weird at first because you're just like, I don't, wait, um, huh? Wait, Fresh Prince is blue? I'm confused. But once you get used to it, it's fine. And they don't leave him in the blue the whole time. I think it was good, good. One of the things that I appreciated was they picked up on feminist themes and so Jasmine's story is much more filled out so she goes from kind of being damsel in distress to like really bright and energetic and thoughtful young woman who is suffering from the 
practices of the time, but should actually, I don't want to spoil what is a little bit different about this version, but I think her character is much better filled out. And I think she stands as an inspiring figure to young women. And that is one of the things I really liked about where they took the movie now. But yeah, I I thought it was good. I thought it was entertaining. Like it is definitely a children's movie, right? So there were points in which I was like, okay, I get it. We can move this along. But if I'm a kid, right, I need all of those points. I enjoyed myself. It's fascinating that we're in this moment where we have these sort of live action reboots of all these Disney movies that were out when we were kids. I mean, you got Aladdin, you got The Lion King. Woo! With Beyonce Knowles, Carter. When they said live action, I wasn't really sure what they meant because it's human, but also kind of three-dimensional animation, sort of like an interesting combo. But I'm I'm very curious about what the... The Lion King is going to be like, because I remember the day they dropped who the cast was. And I was like, oh, snap. (laughs) That was a moment. Although I think people were disappointed when the trailer came out that like Beyonce wasn't wearing a lion costume. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, no, no, no. It's live action with animals. Live animals. (laughs) Right. So I thought live action meant it was like a recorded Broadway thing. I agree. I thought that's what live action was too. Not like the Broadway show. (laughs) No. It is this question too about like, why do we need to keep remaking all the old stuff? Like I do, I hope that we soon get to a point where we can just like, make really dope new classics. You know, it's like we got To Kill a Mockingbird again and The Lion King and Aladdin and The Jeffersons. And it's like the hits were hits. I mean, they really were. Like you think about all the great black TV that existed a while ago. It's like from Hanging with Mr. Cooper to Moesha to the PJs. Yes. We need to create space for new classics, not just new momentary things, but like new things that last. I will say, and Brittany, you started this uh, down the Old Town Road, is Lil Nas X really, you know, the country people didn't know what they was doing when they blocked him from getting that number one hit the first time. And now the boy cannot stay off the charts. He is Ooh. he blocked everybody else from being number one because he up there got to deal with the Wrangler. The You know, I haven't worn Wranglers in... He got to deal with Wrangler? Yeah, because there's that line in the oh, song. Snap. There's a line in the song about wearing Wranglers. <laughs> yeah. And now he's like, a, he's a deal with Wrangler. And the country people were mad about that. And they said that he was appropriating country culture. Wow. <laughs> Wow. You know, in this country, you shouldn't tell Black people (laughs) who are doing anything that is popular among white folks that we are appropriating it. Because 9.9 times out of 10, we invented it. Do we really want to go down the origins of country music in this country? Do we really want to go down that old town road? (laughs) You don't want to go down that old town road. Listen, we gonna ride till we can't no more. Just because Charlie Pride and Darius Rucker are the only Black country musicians you know does not mean (laughs) that Black people were not integral in not only the invention of country music, but its popularization. And we can go on and on and on, and we can talk about how folks who took the blues and other country songs um, mainstream, like Elvis, were actually stealing from folks like Big Mama Thornton. We can Mm -hmm. talk about all of the white proprietors of rock and roll stealing from Mm -hmm. people like Chuck Berry and Little Richard. We can go there if we want to, but I don't think they want to go there. So for my news this week, I wanted to share a little piece of unknown history that I came across. As you all know, doing research for this book and thinking about the stories that were told about race in this country and the stories were not told and what are the places that have relationships to the history of race and racism and how do they talk about and tell the story of what their relationship to that history is. And I came across this article by Jillian Brockell in the Washington Post, who's a a great history writer over there. I love so much of the work she does. And she wrote this piece that's based on some new research that's talking about how the Statue of Liberty was actually designed to celebrate the end of slavery and not 
the arrival of immigrants, as is the common narrative in the sort of larger consciousness of the United States. And so Ellis Island, for example, the inspection station through which millions of immigrants pass, didn't open until six years after the statue was unveiled in 1886. The plaque with the famous Emma Lazarus poem, Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor, Your Huddled Masses, Yearning to Breathe Free, that wasn't added until 1903. Uh, so this is based on a book by Edward Berenson, who's a history professor at New York University and author of the new book, The Statue of Liberty, A Transatlantic Story, which outlines how the first meanings of the statue, again, had to do with abolition, but didn't stick. And so ended up having the sort of broader narrative around immigration, even though that was not necessarily the initial impetus for the statue coming into existence. So the monument, as you all know, draws four to five million visitors per year and was first imagined by a man named Edouard de Laboulet. I used to take French and clearly my French is a little rusty. In France, he was an expert on the U.S. Constitution and followed the American Civil War closely and was president of a committee that raised and dispersed funds to newly freed slaves. Uh, Laboulet loved America, often giving speeches described by a New York Times correspondent in 1867 as, quote, feasts of liberty which moved the souls of men to their deepest depths. And he loved it even more when slavery was abolished. So in June 1865, which is after the end of the Civil War, Laboulet organized a meeting of French abolitionists at his home in Versailles, and they talked about this idea of creating some kind of commemorative gift that would recognize the importance of the liberation of enslaved people in the United States. In an early model around 1870, Lady Liberty is shown with her right arm in the position that we're familiar with, raised and illuminating the world with the torch. And in her left hand, she had broken shackles, which was an homage to the end of slavery. But in the model that ended up being used, Lady Liberty holds a tablet inscribed with the Roman numerals for July 4th, 1776, which is our Independence Day. And the broken chains are no longer as conspicuous as they were. Now they are sort of hidden under a robe beneath her feet, which I didn't even realize existed in the first place. And uh, the NYU professor talks about how that's by design. And part of the reason that this happened is that fundraising in France and the United States was taking a long time. And the sculptor, Frédéric Auguste Barthody cast the project in the broadest terms possible to sort of widen the net of potential donors, right? So it wasn't, if you were like, all right, we are bringing the Statue of Liberty to commemorate the end of slavery, a whole bunch of racist people are going to be like, nah, we're not about that. But instead, if you're like, wow, immigration, like here we are, this pluralistic nation that's like bringing people together, people are like, oh yeah, I can get behind that. And so that's how they raised all this money. And ultimately they became so consumed over the years and years with raising the money and the narrative and the model of the statue changed so many times that the original intent of the Statue of Liberty being an homage to the end of slavery and abolition was lost. I just never knew this. So shout out to Gillian for bringing this to our attention and shout out to Dr. Berenson, the history professor at NYU for writing this book that I can't wait to dig into. There's so many lessons here, right? I mean, there is clearly a conversation about how much we erase the truth in order to make people comfortable, in order to make people with privilege comfortable. And if the truth is that both the end of slavery is something to be celebrated and that this statue was 
originally designed to celebrate exactly that would be far too much for enough people to get behind, apparently, to fund it. And those are choices that people make every single day, right? That they make things more palatable from media to art to design to curriculum and everything in between so that it is more palatable to those audiences who do not want to be confronted with their own complicity. The other thing that is really significant for me, though, here is an opportunity for us to once again recommit ourselves to solidarity. And here's what I mean by that. I'm a person who does not use the phrase nation of immigrants. We know that it was popularized by a speech that John F. Kennedy made, but I actually choose not to use that phrase. Not because immigrants are not a critically important piece of the American fabric, but because it can so often erase two critically important groups of people. One, people who are indigenous to this nation, who are not gone, they are still here. And two, people who were not at all voluntary immigrants to this country, my ancestors, people who were enslaved on these shores. And so we are a nation of immigrants and of indigenous folks and of the descendants of formerly enslaved people, and frankly, a nation of people who are descended of those who conquered and colonized this land. All of those things are true, and we have to continuously reckon with the truth. But again, to the point of solidarity, this news doesn't discount the connection of Ellis Island and of this statue to the immigrant community, to the dignity and humanity that the immigrant community should be treated with. What it actually gives us the opportunity to do is to have a fully fleshed out understanding of history and to recognize that a story can be connected between marginalized and oppressed people and that story can actually strengthen us all. So this really reminded me of two things. I think the first in hearing this, you know, especially following a conversation that has been ongoing for years now about Confederate statues, all kinds of monuments to white supremacists that continue to exist across the country. And the fact that there are so few monuments celebrating folks who are enslaved, celebrating abolitionists, celebrating folks who resisted enslavement. And yet, you know, historically, what this article shows is that actually perhaps the most famous monument in America right now originally was meant for that purpose and it got erased, right? So we would have had that monument, but because of the unwillingness of so many people at that time and even today to support a monument that was very intentionally and clearly explicitly about abolition and celebrating that. Instead, it was sort of whitewashed and made palatable to the masses in order to raise funds, in order to sort of sell papers. And that history was erased until now. And then the second piece that this reminded me of was just how fleeting the period after the Civil War leading up to the end of Reconstruction actually was. It literally lasted the length of time it took to build the statue. So from the inception of the statue in 1870 to the time that it was completed and unveiled in 1886, in that period of time, Reconstruction had already been crushed. The Supreme Court already rolled back civil rights protections and Jim Crow laws had already been enacted in states across the country. So in that amount of time it took to build this one statue, that entire period of time, that period of promise and possibility had been essentially crushed by white supremacists. And I think that that sort of speaks to how fleeting these moments often are and how, you know, especially in a moment like we're in now, where after eight years of one president, we're seeing many of the accomplishments during that time in terms of healthcare and other things, some things which weren't so great, but some things that were get rolled back. It's just all the more sort of American in that sense that it symbolizes how fleeting these moments of freedom and liberation and possibility actually have been and continue to be. 
the things that stick out to me, one is that it's never too late to learn something new and that uh, we are still discovering and rediscovering things that we thought we knew really well about history. And I'm always mindful of that. The second is that we often say that there is no country without Black people. And people think that that is like sort of a sly comment or like a joke. It's real that the foundation of this country was built on the exploitation of Black and brown people, definitely the indigenous Native Americans. And certainly slavery allowed for wealth accumulation that fuels the economy today. But you even think about these monuments and like, what does it mean? One of the quotes in the article says it was about abolition, but abolition didn't stick. Like, what does it mean that these conversations that are squarely about race just weren't resonant? So they had to go to something else. The other thing that I thought was like really fascinating was the article notes that black newspapers rallied against the statue because they said it was meaningless and hypocritical. And going back to what you said, Sam, is that they explicitly, their push was that reconstruction had just been crushed. The Supreme Court had just rolled back civil rights protections and Jim Crow laws were like all the rage. So why have a statue be celebratory when there was nothing actually to celebrate in practice? And I'll just uh, read a quote that's quoted in the article in the Washington Post from an 1886 editorial in the black newspaper, the Cleveland Gazette. It says, shove the statue, torch and all, into the ocean until the liberty of this country is such as to make it possible for an industrious and inoffensive colored man in the South to earn a respectable living for himself and family. The idea of the liberty of this country, quote, enlightening the world or even Patagonia is ridiculous in the extreme. And that stuck out to me for a couple reasons. One is it's a reminder that there is a legacy of uh, narratives of Black people from a long time ago that just have not been really incorporated into the way that we talk about history. And this made me want to go look back at all the editorials from Black newspapers back in the day. But also from even back then, there was like a push to hold this country accountable for the ills and to make sure that the symbolism of this country actually matches the reality of the country. And I thought that was impressive and a reminder of the work ahead. So my piece of news today is a fascinating article in the New York Times called The Typical American Lives Only 18 Miles from Mom. Through this article, they did an analysis of data on where people live across the country uh, through a comprehensive survey of older Americans. What they find, and this actually really surprised me, and that is that the majority of Americans live very close to where they grew up. In fact, only 20% of Americans live more than a couple of hours drive from their parents. I'll repeat that, only 20% of Americans live more than a couple of hours drive from their parents. So much so that uh, about a third of Americans live in the same hometown that they were born in. And a majority of Americans have never lived outside of their home state. So the researchers sort of dive into, you know, why that is. One of the key things that they find is that income and education play a role in determining how far you are likely to be from where you grew up. And what they find when they look into this is that childcare and the cost of childcare, particularly in the United States, because there's not support for childcare in the United States like there are in many other countries, that the burden of childcare is actually so great, and also elder care, that many families uh, do not leave very far from where their parents are and rely on their parents for childcare. And then their parents, as they grow older, rely on their children for elder care. And that that's a really important factor in explaining why people often don't move very far from their parents. The other thing that was interesting here is they do a breakdown by race. They find that Black families and Black people are more likely to live closer to where their parents are. This was really fascinating and speaks to something I've been thinking about a lot. You know, as the parents of two kids under two, I have never wanted to live near my parents as much as I do right now. 
I feel incredibly lucky that my wife and I have jobs and livelihoods and professions that we find valuable and meaningful and that lead us to different cities and different places for school and our professional lives otherwise. Especially now with two kids, given the cost of childcare, given the fact that we don't live near any family, we feel that strain in a different sort of way. And like you said, Sam, I didn't know the fact that only 20% of Americans live more than a couple hours drive away from their parents. And as we get older, the rationale around that becomes increasingly evident. And so obviously this is tied to socioeconomic status. This is tied to race. But it is something that as you begin to have a family and, and as you try to balance your work life and your family life, it is the only way that you can manage oftentimes is to be near family who can help you out. Clint, I think that this point about caretaking is so important because this actually makes me think of my own parents' story. Uh, my dad grew up in Chicago. My mom grew up in St. Louis. And when they got married, my dad was the pastor of a small church in New Britain, Connecticut. And he was able to be that far from home. And my mother was able to be that far from home in great part because they both had master's degrees from elite universities. And they could go to where the jobs are and know that they would be competitive, even if they didn't have relationships in that market, in that region. But still, when my mom got pregnant with me and my dad got called to a church in St. Louis, he had to decide if he was going to take the job. And my mom was basically like, what is there to decide? The church is fantastic. And additionally, almost my entire family is there. And having two working parents meant that grandparents who were close by and aunts and uncles who were close by meant that like the drop off and the school pickup and if somebody forgot their lunch and it needed to be dropped off, like all of that stuff could get taken care of. When dad had to be at church late, I could go to my maternal grandfather's house and watch Cardinals baseball or Matlock on a little tiny black and white TV. And they knew that I would be well taken care of by people who loved me and who wouldn't impose an additional financial burden, right? And so the kind of access that education and eventually a good salary gave my parents to be able to live anywhere they wanted, it still came down to the fact that America doesn't actually reward or find value in caretaking, either taking care of elders as your parents age or taking care of children. And so people are forced to find the situations that are most convenient for them, even when they have access to great educations and great salaries. I think about all the stuff people are studying in the academy that is interesting that we have never seen that don't become books or op-eds in major newspapers. One of the things that I thought was really interesting that we haven't talked about yet is that there's a quote that said, it found that with the exception of college or military service, 37% of Americans had never lived outside their hometown and 57% had never lived outside their home state. And this immediately, besides the stuff that we already talked about, about childcare and about how money is a proxy for the ability to travel and those sort of things, is like what this means for organizing and what this means for politics. I believe that one of the reasons why I think about, you know, I live in Baltimore, and one of the reasons why I can think about what the city can be is that I've been to other places, right? Like when I grew up in Baltimore and lived in the city exclusively, like literally Hopkins was like the only college I really understood. Hopkins and Morgan, they were like the only two schools. I didn't know much else about the broader world unless I saw it online, I saw it on TV. And then I started to travel and I was like, oh, we don't, we can actually like fully fund public education or we can like have rec centers that have real programming or we can do, like I just started to see other things. I think there's something about when you are in one place exclusively for a lot, it becomes like the norm and you just see it around you. And I think that there's something about that 
that is important for organizing, that part of what we want to do, right, is help people broaden their horizons and perspectives about what is possible in the world. And part of that is seeing that, like, some of the things that we think are revolutionary, we've actually already done in other places. And seeing is believing. And it made me think about how, when I think about some of the big issues, like public education, policing, homelessness, like a whole bunch of things, like there are places across the country who've actually done this well. And part of what I think the next step is in the organizing space is to help people get closer to those things, like to see them, especially when this shows that like a lot of people stay really close to where they are. It also presents a really cool opportunity that because there's so many people who stay in their hometowns or home states, there's a deeper level of investment to make sure that that's better for the next set of people that come around. So I'm hopeful, you know, it is five years since the protests began, and I'm hopeful that the next five years will bring some substantive change. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. 
So I wanna talk about the tariff war with China. Now look, I was not an economics major, but I do understand fundamentally that a tariff increases the price of imported goods in order to try to restrict imports from certain places. So creating new tariffs on China was Trump's way of trying to punish them. As you can imagine, we ended up in what is now called a tariff or a trade war because there were retaliatory tariffs taken out on the things that America imports to China and its allies. So Trump continues to peddle misinformation about this particular course of action by telling people that this is essentially a tax on China. It is not. These costs get passed on to the very places that Trump swore would never suffer because he swears by the harmful nationalist high right of America first. It's actually American consumers, farmers, and American laborers that have paid the direct and indirect costs of this trade war that he decided to start with China. UCLA economists actually estimate that the cost to American consumers has been $68 billion with a B over the last year in passed along costs. It has also cost people jobs. That's the very thing that Trump said he'd be bringing back to, quote, make America great again, right? As an example of this, there are 40,000 jobs that have been estimated to be lost in the beer industry alone, in part because there are now tariffs on the aluminum used to make beer cans. So there are all of these direct and indirect ways in which everyday people are being affected by these choices. And of course, this is having a severely detrimental impact on farmers and the agricultural industry at large. Importers pass along higher costs to farmers, and farmers have a harder time exporting their crops to China and their allies, who are major buyers. So Trump has done two things to answer for this. One is that last year he created $12 billion in emergency farm aid. Most of that was actually directed towards soybean farmers because their exports to China literally fell to zero as a result of this trade war. The other thing is that he just announced a $16 billion farmer bailout. Now, agriculture matters to this country, and farmers do incredibly important and hard work for the domestic and global economy. The truth is they've gotten $28 billion in bailout money to solve an issue that Trump created himself by starting this trade war. So there were already issues in the agriculture industry, but this was a problem of Trump's creation. This bailout will, of course, not actually solve farmers' long-term issues because they still lost markets to which they used to export their goods, and they're afraid that those markets won't actually return to them even if the tariffs are the end. So this is the point. Trump isn't doing right by anyone that he said he would do right by, except for wealthy white men. The farmers, many of whom voted for him and belonged to his base, are getting worked over in all of the exact ways that he never said he would do. He is terrible for working people everywhere, foreign and domestic, and we just have to tell the truth about that. What we should also note is that $28 billion is the exact same amount of money that is both being given to farmers to bail them out and that was spent on Pell Grants last year, which enable people from low-income backgrounds to more easily access college. So in other words, taxpayers are literally paying double for a problem that Trump created. Meanwhile, we're scraping together public dollars to address issues of inequality. This all tells me that his priorities are very clear, and his priority is certainly not doing right by marginalized people or even, frankly, the people across the heartland who may have voted for him. But I think for context, it's also helpful to think about all the things that Trump's 2019 budget says that's going to cut, right? So he has $28 billion that he just pulls out of our pockets and uses it to ostensibly solve a problem that he created. And... Mind you that nobody's asking, like, how are we going to pay for it? Where is this going to come from? Meanwhile, our planet is falling apart and melting and 
people are like, well, wow, we don't have enough money. That's an aside. But think about all of the things that he is cutting or has proposed to cut in his 2019 budget. Cuts to Medicaid, cuts to Medicare, cuts to Social Security, cuts to SNAP, which is Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, otherwise known as food stamps, cuts to Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, cuts to the Student Loan Program, cuts to Section 8 vouchers, public housing, Head Start, Women, Infants, and Children's Nutrition Program, Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program. The list goes on and on, right? So it's fascinating to think about the things that we are told we don't have enough money to pay for, especially when those things have to do with people living in poverty, often who are black and brown. And yet, when it comes to him solidifying his constituency, the people who he needs in order to win re-election, he's able to pull money out from wherever he needs it, right? So I think the sort of mythology of like, do we have money to do X, Y, or Z? There is money to do what needs to be done. It's just a matter of who is in a position to decide where this money is going to go. So the only thing I'll add is a a survey that was recently conducted. uh, It's in an article in Bloomberg today. It's a survey of 239 American corporations. So they're really asking these companies how the Trump tariffs and the reaction to those tariffs by the Chinese government are impacting their business. And so in looking at the results here, it's pretty clear that this is having a deep economic impact that, it, of course, is being felt by workers, is being felt by everybody who's going to have their programs cut in order to pay for this bailout. Just to give you a couple of data points here, about 40% of the companies in the survey said the hike of U.S. tariffs would have a strong negative impact on their business. 35% of firms said that their main strategy for dealing with this was to restructure so their operations were more heavily in China for China. So just to be clear what this is doing, this is negatively impacting companies. The impacts of that are being felt by workers and folks who are living in poverty who are going to have programs cut potentially by this administration to pay for the bailout. And the long-term economic impact is to shift jobs from the United States overseas and to really strengthen the Chinese economic position, which you know I was actually there recently less than a year ago. And I mean, like, if you go to like Hong Kong or Beijing or Shanghai, I mean, it is just like next level and very clearly growing at a rate that, you know, is going to surpass the United States very soon. But these tariffs very clearly are having the exact opposite impact that I think even somebody like Trump would expect them to have. And I think that's not a surprise. And it's also a reminder that we need people in government who actually understand these issues and do not cause unforced errors and self-inflicted harm on our people. I think for me, it was a reminder of how complicit all the Republicans have been in allowing him to do these things with no oversight. It is something we could say every single day that if Obama or any Democrat had done something like this with these effects, then there would be congressional hearings back to back all day. But the Republicans have just enabled this and have allowed this to happen despite the impact that's happening in the economy. One of the things that I didn't know is that Did you know that 95%, this is so random, but the 95% of all fireworks are made in China? So people are probably experiencing around July 4th. Like there is an idea that there actually like might not be as many fireworks because the cost will be too high because of the tariffs. And the fireworks made me think about how like it's so hard sometimes to realize the international decisions that get made that impact what happens at your local store. So 
people will be like, wow, fireworks are more expensive this year. And just think that, like, I don't know, something about the production of fireworks went up when in reality they're artificially expensive because Trump just like made up some tariffs. Right. I think that the other thing is that it'll be interesting to see what happens post-Trump with regard to the executive power, because you also think about how Congress voted against arming Saudi Arabia and then Trump just declared an emergency and then sold guns to Saudi Arabia. Is that like the executive has a lot of power that presidents historically have just not wielded randomly like this, and he is doing it in such a random way. It made me too think about the $1.7 billion has been spent so far on the wall, but $1 billion has only built a mile of wall, people. One mile. That is unreal. So when people tell you that there's not enough money to go around, there's always enough money, that Trump's budget, as Clint said, is a reminder, that the wall is a sham. When I thought about the wall, it literally was like, imagine how many people Trump made rich off of spending a billion dollars on a mile of wall. Like, he literally created more generational wealth for white people. Like, that's what happened with those contracts. We all need to study international policy much more. That We spend so much time with the domestic stuff that the foreign stuff, we don't really understand it until it hits the news. My news is the story that I saw when it hit the timeline and I retweeted some stuff about it, but I had no clue the full extent. So the San Francisco public defender, Jeff Adachi, he died a couple months ago. And there were all these stories about him because he was a really progressive public defender. He was like a larger than my personality. People really liked him or respected him and the work that he did in San Francisco. And then shortly after he died, somehow the investigation to his death got into the hands of a reporter and it got published eventually. And what it showed is that he died from a combination of cocaine and alcohol. So it comes out and he was really aggressive with the police department around police misconduct cases and stuff like that. And the question was like, how and why did the police leak this information? They knew the reporter who got the information And they asked him for his sources, and he said no. And the law in California protects reporters, so the reporters can't be compelled to turn over their sources, so he's protected in that way. And then suddenly he says no again, and the police show up with a battering ram, literally break down his door, seize his computer, phones, they search his house, take his files, all this stuff. There's a public outcry because that happened. The police doubled down immediately and say, like, they got a warrant, they did get a warrant, and that this was justified. And then a couple days later, the police chief comes out and he apologizes. He says that they're not going to pursue any charges against the guy. He says that breaking into the house was probably illegal and that they're going to turn it over to have an investigation of how this whole thing happened where they broke into this guy's house. And the reason I bring it here is that, like, you know, sometimes when we talk about the police stuff, people think we're talking about these old cases, like police misconduct that happened, I don't know, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. Like, why are you living in the past? And like, this just happened. You know, this is like two months old at most. And what does it mean where the police can literally just like break down somebody's door and then be like, oops, my bad. Sorry. Like, that's that's wild. And what we know is that there's almost no accountability for police anyway. So the question is, like, not only how is there accountability for whoever approved this and like, what did they take? Did they give it all back? They said they're not going to pass over what they took to anybody. But who has any reason to believe or trust them given what they've already done? And the second is, like, how do you make sure these things don't exist again? And remember, like, a judge had to sign off on the warrant and the judges aren't saying anything. The two judges signed off on this. It's like, how does this even happen? So I want to bring it here because this is fresh, uh, that people often think about police violence as being a manifestation of people get killed, but it functions in so many other ways. 
So Mayor Breed has called for an independent investigation into what happened. This is clearly an atrocious abuse of power and is all of the things that DeRay has already said. But this is part of the reason why, in terms of accountability, not justice, because justice would have been this never happening in the first place, but in terms of accountability, independent investigations are so important. I was on President Obama's 21st Century Policing Task Force, and that was one of the things that I knew I could not go home to my community to all of the people that had been rising up in Ferguson without ensuring that in the report that we've published in the end, that independent prosecutions and investigations absolutely had to be in that report. This is part of the reason why they're so important. We should be very clear that the police can't police themselves, but especially when, to DeRay's point, we see in situations like this an entire constellation of people across a system working together to make a single thing happen. This is part of the reason why we have to remove those investigative powers outside of the entire system. There is no possible way we are going to get to an answer about what happened here or clarity on how to create solutions so that this never happens again, unless that investigative power is actually removed from the very system that created the problem in the first place. And so this is part of the reason why between Campaign Zero, President Obama's task force, and so many other people who are involved in police accountability and justice work, that independent investigations is something that we harp on so much. You know, I just want to reaffirm what Brittany and DeRay said, that you can't trust police to police themselves. And to tie it back to my news, right, like always be mindful of who is in charge of writing the narrative, right? Whether it be in a historical sense, whether it be in a contemporary sense, always be conscious of the fact that the story you are hearing was written by a person with their own ideology, with their own interest in mind. And often those are done by people in positions of power, in positions of authority, who are attempting to preserve, maintain, and expand those positions of power and authority, often at the expense of people who are much less fortunate, often at the expense of the rights that we are ostensibly supposed to have as American citizens. So it's always something to be mindful of. And this is another reminder of many that that's the case. For a little bit of context, in 2016, a Department of Justice report came out showing deep, deep systemic issues within the San Francisco Police Department around use of force, uh, as well as other areas. They began implementing a number of recommended reforms. They updated their use of force policy. You know, they've seen significantly fewer use of force incidents, as well as police shootings under this new police chief, Bill Scott. But this is like a reminder that those are obviously very important signs of progress. But, you know, when we talk about policing, policing is just so much more than use of force. It is how police are, you know, stopping people and searching people, how they're interacting with people on a daily basis, how they're treating journalists and people who write stories that don't always make them look good. It's a reminder that we should be paying attention to every single sort of facet or aspect of how police show up in communities uh, in order to make sure that they're being held accountable to each and every one of these things so that communities can ultimately be free, not only of police violence, but also of this type of intimidation, what looks to be clearly an illegal act. So I'm just curious to see how the officers who broke the law are held accountable and whether that's going to look anything like what happens to civilians who are found to have broken the law by the police. This is one of many areas of policing. And obviously, it looks like this is an area where SFPD in particular needs to make a lot more progress on. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. 
everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. And now my conversation with Glenda Jackson, former Labour Party leader in the UK and award-winning actor. She is currently playing King Leo on Broadway, which I saw on opening night. It is great to have you here on Pod Save the People. Thank you very much for inviting me. I was there on opening night of King Lear, and I saw your performance. What made you choose to do this role? You've done so much in your career. Well, I have a great friend, a wonderful Spanish actress, Nuria Esper, and she was doing it in Barcelona, and I went over to see her, and she was fantastic. It was a wonderful production. And she said to me, why don't you do it? And I said, don't be ridiculous. They'd never let me do Lear in England. However, the old Vic Theatre in London, which I had worked in when I was still acting, ooh, I think at least three or four times, and they wanted me to do a play. And so I put this up. And initially, because they're physically quite close to the Globe Theatre, which, as you know, is all Shakespeare. But then eventually they said, OK, let's do it. And so we did it. What was it like to play a man? Well, I don't really approach it on that level. When I was a member of Parliament, one of the things that all MPs do um, is you have to visit old people's homes, day centres, centres where people with disabilities are helped and things like that. And one of the things I found really fascinating was that as we get older, and we are all getting older, those absolute definitions of what constitute gender, those big kind of borders, 
begin to crack, they begin to fray, they get a bit misty. And so that, I thought, was quite useful in playing Lear. And one of the interesting things, both here and most certainly in England, was that no member of the audience ever mentioned it, except one night outside the theatre here in New York, a woman said to me, I've seen lots of Lear's. She said, it's the first time I've been aware that he has a maternal side. Mm. And I thought that was very interesting. You've done so much for your career, like politics, acting. How has being in this play made you think about the profession of acting differently? Or like, what have you learned about acting? Well, I think I've been particularly fortunate because I've worked with some remarkable people in my time, not only directors, but writers and obviously other actors. And one of the first things that I was taught was that you leave your ego outside the rehearsal room door. And so my approach has always been, and I've worked in the main with people who share this view, is that regardless of the size of the role, everybody in a production is responsible for the whole thing. I mean, whether they're in a scene or not. I mean, I've seen actors destroy a play, walking into a scene with the wrong kind of attitude and things like that. I've been very fortunate. I'm in many of those. And it is that sense of a kind of corporate energy that is really valuable. One of the things, regrettably, that hasn't changed over all the years is that certainly contemporary dramatists still don't find women interesting. Hmm. They are rarely, if ever, the central driving dramatic engine. I don't understand why that should be. I mean, I'm not sitting here saying that women have achieved equality. Clearly, we haven't. But doors have opened for us. Opportunities are there for us. But playwrights don't seem to see it. How do you talk to people about the relevance of Shakespeare in modern time? But he is, surely. He is the most contemporary dramatist around because he essentially only writes about us. He asks, who are we, what are we, why are we? No one, including himself, has come up with a comprehensive answer. But the tropes in this play that are directly related to the world we live in now are just astonishing. I mean, all these movements now have names, but I mean, look at millennials, for example. I mean, essentially what these young people are saying now is that if there is any money in our family, we never get it until we're too old to enjoy it. That's a trope in this play. The two lines that he has about politics and politicians get rounds of applause every night. That trope is there in the play because, as I say, human nature is immutable. How have you seen the theatre change over the years? Well, certainly, I mean, we started talking about me playing a male role. And in England, there has been a kind of gender-bender war, which I think we've won. I mean, it was set up and certainly achieved by this marvellous company of women who came together. And their first project was to do all the Shakespearean histories oh, wow. with all female casts. Were you part of that? No, I wasn't, okay. unfortunately. But they were really, really good. And I think on that level, it's been achieved. But I think, well, I go back to what I've already moaned about. You know, there's still no real shift as far as contemporary drama is concerned in women being interesting. We're still an adjunct, it seems to me, to the male central driving engine. And people say to me, oh, no, there are more women dramatists, there are more women directors. This is true. But the situation still is 
that if a woman is successful, regardless of the field that she's working in, she is deemed to be the exception that proves the rule. If she's a failure, well, we told you they were all rubbish. Do you have a favorite Shakespeare play? I think my favorite is, oddly enough, Julius Caesar. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I just find those characters, well, all his characters are Have you performed in that? No, no, never. But those, yeah, it's, I, I think it's my favorite. I think about so many young people have not, they know Shakespeare is like a thought, but they haven't read him in school yet. If there was like an entry-level Shakespeare that people should engage in, like what would be, if you had to advise people on their first Shakespeare, like if you're trying to get into Shakespeare, what would it be? I think probably to start off with one of the comedies and then probably one of the tragedies. What's one of the comedies? I feel like I need to read more Shakespeare. You know, Midsummer Night's Dream, that's very funny. Um, we'll slide over this. There are a lot of comedies. You get a copy of all Shakespeare's work and they do it in the categories. But really, it's what's interesting, there was some festival celebrating him in my country a few years ago. I can't remember. It was my 500 years since he died or was born or something. And my grandson, who was then at junior school, as you call it, there the school celebrated this. They did a very shortened version of A Midsummer Night's Dream. But the other thing that they also did was all the teachers gave their classes a line to about six kids in the class, you know what I mean, gave them a line from Shakespeare, and they said it to the, the camera in the mobile phone. Then they edited it down to a film so that parents could see it. And my son, who is a political writer himself, he said to me, he said, these children were saying lines that are part of our language today. And the man who wrote them wrote them more than 500 years ago. And that is just staggering, isn't it? You know, I mean, God. I mean, he wrote not only King Lear, but also the Scottish play and Antony and Cleopatra all in the same year. That is wild. Yep. Do you miss Parliament? Not the palace itself. I miss my constituency and I miss the people I made friends with in my constituency. But at the moment, I mean, occasionally you get glimpses of the actual chamber of the House of Commons because of the whole Brexit brouhaha that's going on. And I sit there and I watch these people. I don't know all of them, but many of them I do know. And I think, what has happened to you all? You've all gone crazy over this Brexit deal. And a guy who was elected the same year I was, 92, he's a conservative, I'm Labour. And I said to him, he came to see the show, and I said to him, what are you doing? What has happened here? <laughs> I mean, and what has happened? What did he say? Well, it was a rather halting answer, but <laughs> <laughs> he shared my view, I think. Could you see Brexit coming? Well, I mean, the, the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, announced that there was going to be a referendum on Brexit, and essentially, that was because he wanted to stifle the ongoing split in his party about being in or out. And I thought, well, you know, nobody's going to vote for us to leave. Went to bed on the night of the actual referendum itself when the reportage was that the vote was that we stay within Europe. At six o'clock in the morning, I wake up to find that we're coming out. And I couldn't believe it. I said to my daughter-in-law, we have to emigrate. We're going to Scotland. <laughs> I mean, but That's wild. here we are. What was like the biggest surprise about working in Parliament? Or was it exactly what you thought it'd be? No, because I wasn't that aware of how the work was structured. 
I think one of the amazing things for me was that I saw egos walking up and down those corridors that wouldn't have been tolerated for 30 seconds in a professional theatre. That, I think, has fundamentally changed because we have far more younger members of parliament than when I was first elected in 92. And certainly that parliament expected me either to be a total airhead who would fall flat on her face (laughs) because she didn't know anything, or some kind of mad diva who would demand special treatment. And that came as a bit of a shock. I didn't realise they were quite so unaware of what life in a theatre can actually be like. (laughs) What made you run? Like, What was that decision? Anything I could have done that was legal, that would have got Margaret Thatcher and her government out of office, I was prepared to go at. I mean, I had been incorporated by the Labour Party to do various things, mostly fundraising things for them. Ever since I became, I'm never quite sure which way round this is, a face you know or a name you know. And I'd been approached by, well, you know, constituency Labour parties to stand as a prospective candidate because there was an election coming up in, well, it was 92, several years before then. But anything, anything I could have done, because I could not believe, I still find it hard to believe, the things that she was introducing, they were having such a desperately, I thought, and still do, bad effect on my country. Was that like at a dinner table and you were like, I think I'm going to run? Like, do you remember the moment where you were like, I'm definitely running? Well, no. I mean, I can definitely remember the moment when, even though it is now argued that she never said it, that she said that she didn't believe in society, I'm paraphrasing here. And I was so incensed at that, I walked into my closed French windows and almost broke my nose. And then, it must have been several months afterwards, I was approached by the Hampstead constituency, which is in northwest London. And I thought, okay, go, have a go. Never expected to be selected. Certainly didn't expect necessarily to win, but I was selected and I did win. You've retired from Parliament. You've retired from the theater before. You're back. Yeah. Uh, is there another play that you want to be in before you retire again from theater? Is there like another thing you want to do in I've acting? never had that attitude because I've always felt every time I, when I was permanently, in, well, you know, whether acting was my full-time career, once a job finished, be it play, television, film, I was convinced I'd never work again. So... It's always what comes through the front door, really, what sent you. And that still is, is anything going to come through the front door? So I've never had that idea of a kind of plan in that sense. I've been very, very lucky. Last few questions is, uh, what piece of advice do you have for people who, there are a lot of people in this country who have protested, they've called, they've emailed, they've done all the things, and the world isn't changing as quickly as they wanted to change. What do you say to those people? Well, I'll quote them Shakespeare. Patience. I mean, it does take a long time, but it is achievable. We can learn. I've said, you know, human nature is immutable, and it is. But we can change the human condition, not only for ourselves, but for the rest of the world in a positive kind of way. And I think what is one of the great things about us, even though our characters are immutable, is we do respond to tragedy, drama, pain, you like it, you know. And I think 
that is something where there is a kind of unification. And although I'm highly critical of artificial intelligence and I don't have any of the equipment, I have no cell phones, I have no computers. You have no cell phone? I am a complete and utter Luddite when it comes to artificial intelligence. But one of the major things about artificial intelligence is that we do, as a world, know what's happening so much more quickly. Now, it may be that in some instances, what other people tell us about what's happening in the world is not necessarily true. But that always, always comes to the surface, I think. And having that means of communication when things are terrible and people are asking for help is a value. The last question is, is the question I ask everybody, is that what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Well, I go back to a theatrical, an acting experience. I worked with the two guys, Morecambe and Wise, who were kings of television, the comedians in my country. And they asked me to do their show, and I did. And the advice that I was given by Eric, this glorious, brilliant man, was louder and faster. <laughs> <laughs> So there you go. I got louder and faster. Louder and faster. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.